This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Just About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Our theme today is how to get past the gaps, the gaps that seem to divide so many of the places where we work. Our guest is Laura Kriska. She's a consultant on cross-cultural challenges, and her specialty is promoting teamwork and communication within culturally diverse organizations. Laura is also the author of a very helpful new book, The Business of We. It's about how to close gaps between us and them and create more welcoming and productive workplaces. In this show, she'll talk about practical steps we all can take to bridge the gaps, whether they're related to age, race, nationality, or any factor of identity. Laura, thank you so much for joining us here today. I find your book, The Business of We, to be really timely and important. And also, unlike a lot of books addressing the issue of diversity, it's it's really practical. But before we get into the book, I really want to hear your story. I, I think um, your career as a cross-cultural consultant sounds like it, it began early on. How, how did you become a consultant like this? Can you tell us your story? I'd be happy to tell you my story. And thank you so much for having me on your show. And I, I want to say that overall, I help people build lasting trust across any us versus them gap. And there are so many gaps, as you said earlier. Um, And my role started when I was 22. It was my very first job. And I grew up in Ohio. uh, And I got a job working for Honda Motor Company. Um, They have a huge presence in uh, Marysville, Ohio. And I got a chance to work for Honda because I had spent time in Japan. In fact, I was born in Japan. This often surprises people. When I was a child, I well, I felt very proud of the fact that I had been born in Tokyo. Um, many of my friends had been born in Columbus and Dayton and you know Athens and many places. But when I said Tokyo, it made me feel special. So I had a lifelong interest in Japan. I got to spend my junior year of college in Japan. And then I started working for Honda Motor Company. First in Marysville, Ohio, I worked on the assembly line as part of my training. And then I was sent to the Tokyo headquarters of Honda Motor Company. And there was a huge culture shock. Even though I had lived in Japan, I spoke Japanese, I really wanted to be there. I was experiencing the culture shock that every human goes through when they stop being a student and start being a grown-up. Do you remember those, uh, that transition? (laughs) Oh yes. And you were doing a lot of things at once. Exactly. And I also, I, I, I would say that I failed to know that I was going through a lot and that was part of my problem. I had this notion, this false notion that I understood everything. And that because I had lived in Japan uh, for one year, because I was somewhat familiar, I thought that little bit of experience gave me a depth of knowledge that I simply hadn't earned. And therefore, 
from the very first day, I had problems. I caused problems, um, many of them having to do with the inherent and predictable culture differences that occur when people from different backgrounds work together. Um, these differences are often very salient, very clear when there's an international difference. But I would argue that there are culture gaps in every single organization. Every American organization has a culture. And it might not be as obvious as a cultural difference when you go to a different country, but those culture gaps exist and are relevant, important, predictable. So how did you start noticing um, what you didn't know? How did you start saying, oh, there's more difference here than I expected, and I've got to figure out how to connect? Well, I started noticing the way most people start noticing in business, which is I had problems. Now, in businesses here in America, these problems show up as complaints, uh, gossip, negative remarks, um, legal trouble. Like these are all the key indicators. Now, when I was there, my problems were limited to my myself. I was just one person, but I wasn't developing good relationships. And specifically with one of the people I was assigned to work with, I initially worked with 10 Japanese office ladies. This phrase office lady is very common in Japan. Um, and we have, it's a kind of clerical position. And these 10 Japanese office ladies supported the uh, directors of Honda Motor Company. There were, were about 40. It was changing. So I joined this team of women. And we were similar in many ways. We were all relatively young, unmarried, you know, working. And I was so excited to be part of this group. But I failed to notice that there was seniority at play, very rigid, much more rigid than in most American companies. And I failed to notice it. I completely stepped all over this seniority, this unspoken seniority. And I offended the most senior office lady within the first couple of days. And she was not happy. And I not only could I not make a good relationship with her, I had a bad relationship with her. Uh, she bullied me. Um, she would, you know, kind of, today we'd probably call it harass me. But I contributed to that. It was my failure to pay attention to both visible and invisible indicators that caused the problem. And I realized later I could have completely avoided a year's worth of heartache with one sentence and that one sentence would have reflected a deeper understanding of the hierarchical system there. And that one sentence would have been as simple as, oh, you know, I'm so new and I would love to learn from you when you have time. Could I ask you some questions? You know, some simple deferential statement would have made a world of difference, but it never occurred to me because I wasn't paying attention to culture. So it took you a year for something to happen. What happened at the end of the year? Well, I would say it took me about a week or two to realize that things were difficult. It took me many more months to recognize that I had failed to notice her seniority. And then I tried in small ways to repair the damage I had done. But it, you know, it was 
somewhat permanent, uh, the damage I had caused. It had been, I think, embarrassing for her, the way I had treated her. Um, and I think there was um, a, a level of discomfort that she had, that we had with one another. So eventually, I transferred out of that department. I did not, you know, I didn't want to keep doing that job for various reasons. She was one of those reasons. Um, but it wasn't a kind of situation where you might have, um, you know, in the United States, if, you know, for example, if you and Bev, you and I worked together and I insulted you in some unintentional way, I might be able to take you aside and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I understand now that that was hurtful to you and I'd like to apologize, right? There wasn't that kind of opportunity um, and there wasn't that type of openness. So I was really stuck with a situation that I, again, I was a big part of causing the trouble and also working in the headquarter, uh, it was in the Tokyo headquarters and this office with the executives was very rigid. You know, it's a lot like most executive offices. They're a little tightly wound. Executives are very important people and I wanted to transfer out of that. So I think it was about a year, maybe, yeah, a little bit over a year um, that I transferred out of that. And I went to one of the factories way outside of Tokyo. And it was a completely different cultural environment. So is it about then that you started perceiving the us-them um, uh, difference in, in organizations. I, I love how you've described that. It makes the book so clear. Mm -hmm. So even if it wasn't then that you were starting to mm -hmm. figure it out, can you tell us the us-them dynamic, uh, how it differed from one place to another and what the us-them gap is? Mm, yeah. Uh, so I would say thinking of things as us versus them did not occur to me till years and years later, uh, after I started working with other people and listening to their troubles and noticing different patterns. But the us-them dynamic exists in every organization I have ever worked in. It, it might be uh, an educational, you know, a university, a school, a religious uh, organization, companies, um, and some of these dynamics, you know, the typical ones might be, you know, sales versus marketing, where the marketing team, you know, develops this great program to help customers and the sales team doesn't inform the customers. And the marketing team is like, you know, why don't you, you know, share this information? And the sales team is because it's not appropriate for our customers. <laughs> and so, you know, the marketing team is not asking for input from the sales team uh, before they make these great materials. And the sales team is irritated with the marketing team. And, and so these type of us versus them dynamics, they exist everywhere and they may or may not have an impact, a big impact on the organization. Most of the time, it's a big impact, but there's not a strong recognition of it. There's almost sometimes an acceptance that these us versus them dynamics happen within one organization between different departments. And I've noticed a lot of leaders will just tolerate it or think there's nothing that can be done. And so it really matters. It's really important to pay attention to how consequential are these dynamics. As we know, there are lots of dynamics that are inconsequential. You know, if you, 
um, think about sports rivalries or, you know, little things like that. Um, those are just kind of fun. But when you get into dynamics that cause division in an organization where, for example, people are bad-mouthing other departments, when there's a reputation that one department, oh, not those people, you know, that kind of thing, or when the headquarter office talks about subsidiary offices, you know, we'll never, you know, they'll never do this or those people, that language is another indicator that there could be a problem. So back to your question, Bev, the idea of us versus them is literally everywhere all the time. And the key is to figure out when it is inconsequential versus when it's consequential and game-changing. Because when these dynamics are interrupting uh, meeting customer needs, when it's interrupting the relationship building within your organization between people who have different backgrounds, um, this is consequential and needs to be addressed. So in your book, you have um, some good practical suggestions for overcoming that division. You call it we building. Can you Mm. tell us what you mean by we building and give us some examples? Mm. So we building is an umbrella term that can apply to lots of different actions. And I often um, ask people in organizations when I'm working with them, to brainstorm and, you know, we'll go through a, a, a training together and think about the us versus them dynamics that exist within their organization. And then we do some brainstorming and a- actions can take place in the form of one human doing something by him, her, or themselves, or it could be the whole organization uh, fostering a we building campaign over many months, for example. So, We building actions are any action that helps narrow a gap between us and them. So if I use the example between the marketing department and sales department, it would be something like the marketing person going to a salesperson and saying, hey, I've developed these materials that I think would be useful uh, for a webinar for our customers. I'd like your input, right? A simple gesture to ask for advice from somebody in this other group. A reaching out. Exactly. Um, but th- so those are kind of related to departmental mandates. I feel that we building is especially important in today's highly interconnected and diverse workplace and global marketplace, where we have today people from so many different backgrounds much more diverse than ever before. So we have people that represent different languages, different ethnicities, races, religions, gender identities, you know, more now than ever in my lifetime. And so the way that we foster connection among people from various backgrounds, again, these are predictable, um, inevitable differences, not good and bad, better or worse, but they're just differences. But if But it's not enough to just recognize, oh, this is diverse, or, you know, to think that proximity to people who are different will, in fact, lead to trusting relationships. It's necessary to take action. So an action that would be useful, for example, would be to learn to say somebody's name correctly. This simple gesture could really make a difference, especially when people 
do not identify with the cultural majority in a particular organization. Um, I call this the home team. Um, This is a phrase I use a lot in the book. And home team refers to whatever group has access to power and money in the organization. So when I worked in Honda in Japan, uh, the home team could pretty easily be identified as middle-aged Japanese men. So when I worked in Honda, I I was not even close to being part of that. I wasn't middle-aged, I wasn't Japanese, and I wasn't a man. So uh, when so for me, I was the outsider in that scenario. But if we're thinking about corporate America, it's you know fairly easy to describe um, the home team in most organizations as middle-aged white and male. So I'm a middle-aged white female. So I'm very closely identified uh, with the home team, and therefore I have a lot of advantages. Um, but if you if a person in the organization does not have a strong identity to that home team, again, the home team could be many different things depending on the organization. If you don't have a strong identity uh, with that home team, then you may easily feel marginalized. So back to the issue of names, you know, names like Bev, Laura, uh, my husband's name is Patrick. You know, these are, you know, if we ever looked on the top, you know, 200 name lists uh, for children in America, our names are going to show up on these lists. And there are many people these days working in all kinds of organizations that have names that have never appeared on the top 200 most commonly used names, even the top 500 most commonly used names. And so this is an indication that somebody might feel like an outsider of them. And so in these situations, it's so critical. In fact, it's urgent that people who do identify with the home team take action to narrow those gaps. And that action would be simply making the effort to say and know the other person's name. And I have just seen so many uh, instances where people aren't doing that. They might hesitate. They might say, oh, I I don't want to draw attention to their name, or I'm embarrassed to ask again, or they just don't care. And that is a mistake. So those are kind of examples of small individual actions. Uh, If you say you're working with somebody from a different country, maybe they originally, um, you know, lived in a different country, you learn one word in that country's language, you know, good morning. Um, You know, again, these are very simple, small gestures that can have a small but immediate positive impact on a person who otherwise might not feel safe, welcome, and that therefore impacts their productivity in the organization. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. 
The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Masters in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. Now I'm going to raise a situation which is tougher, where I think a lot of people are struggling to know what to do. And that is, many of us have been so disturbed by this rise of prejudice and hate crimes aimed at Asian Americans. Uh, and I, I think um, there are a lot of people who would like to do something from where they are, but they don't know how to begin. And maybe they're not in a situation where there's a lot of natural interactions. Do you have any suggestions of, of, mm-hmm. about how um, folks can help to address or heal or empathize? Uh, empathize, to to do something Mm -hmm. about this horrible tide of hate. I agree with you so much. The rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans, uh, against Black Americans, it is heartbreaking. It is absolutely uh, critical that, again, the home team folks, right, home team people are people like me, uh, white uh, especially middle-aged, we have a little bit of authority in our country. Um, but if, if we have to take action. So in the book, I talk about three categories of action. There are safe actions, challenging actions, and radical actions. Safe actions are perfect for right now. These are actions that require no actual interaction with people, which we still need to be safe because of COVID. But they are things that you can start doing at home today. So if someone's listening to the, us now and is thinking, you know, this is awful what's happened to Asian Americans, I need to do something, here are some suggestions. Uh, you can research on the internet, learn about the Asian American experience. I believe PBS did an, uh, a series, a documentary series in the past year, specifically about the Asian American experience, a series of documentaries. So go home and watch one of these episodes, and then tell other people to watch this and then talk about it. Um, reading on the internet is another great tool. There's a, um, a person I learned from a lot. I've never met her. Her name is Michelle Kim, K-I-M, and she has a company called Awaken. Uh, she publishes frequently on Medium. I don't know if your uh, listeners are yes. familiar, but um, a lot of great articles, uh, blog posts, and I've learned a lot from reading her work. I may not uh, always understand or agree or, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to agree or like, but it's important to understand and educate ourselves. This is part of the problem. Many well-meaning white Americans look at the events in recent history and they think this is awful, yet so many of us live segregated white lives. And this gets to your comment earlier. You mentioned, you know, there aren't opportunities for natural actions to occur. And you're right. Because of redlining, because of many legislative, you know, um, actions from the past, Many of us live in neighborhoods that are completely white, 
our kids go to school with mostly white kids. You know, we, we live and interact in white spaces. So this is where we get to the second category of action, which is challenging. Challenging actions are ones that require some kind of face-to-face engagement. And I firmly believe that safe actions are not enough. They're a good place to start, but we will never change the trajectory away from racism until people like me take challenging actions, which means possibly being uncomfortable. Uh, You have to be a little vulnerable. It might be a little risky, but it means putting yourself in a situation where you can engage with people who are different from you. And if you've done the work with safe actions, if you've educated yourself a bit, if you've done some reading um, and learning, then you will be better prepared uh, when you do have the chance to interact with people who are different. So one of the ways to do this is look in your community uh, for uh groups that will have the uh, the them cultural uh, representation. So, you know, I live in New York City and we have um, lots of Asian American people. Um, a simple gesture might be going to, you know, a restaurant or a grocery store. You know, these are still pretty superficial gestures, but it's putting yourself on a path to engage. So instead, so the next step would be to do something more in a committed fashion. This would get to a radical choice where you might be the only non-Asian American or the only non-Black person. So looking for perhaps an interest that you already have. Let's say you play softball or you sing in a choir. Then looking for a group that does that thing and is welcoming, you know, new members And then you join that group specifically uh, to put yourself in a situation where you might develop meaningful relationships. Now, it's important to to note you can't just show up and expect people to want to be your best friend. You know, they may reject you. I mean, this is part of why it's a radical action. Um, But it's putting ourselves in spaces where these uh, kind of organic, uh, natural encounters might happen. But if we're just waiting around uh, in our same white spaces, waiting around for people who are different to show up, it's not going to happen. And I know a lot of people prefer this idea of organic you know, relationship building, but we've been waiting for over 50 years since the civil rights legislation was passed and there has been negligible progress. And I believe one of the reasons for this is that people in the cultural majority, the white cultural majority have not taken the action to build trusting relationships with people who are different. And there's been no penalty to us not to act. And we have hidden behind this colorblind, Uh, culture silent uh, kind of phrasing, and it is not adequate anymore. Well, I I totally agree with you, Laura, which I I guess you can guess because I invited you to join us here today, and I love your book. But I want to look at it from a slightly different direction. We've been talking about, we've talked a lot on um, this podcast about Black Lives Matters and diversity and inclusion in lots of different ways. And, and we're just beginning to focus on 
um, the, the horrible treatment of Asian Americans. But we're doing that because it's the only right way to do it, because it's the right thing. But when I work with clients, one of the things that I've learned is that building a diverse set of relationships, building a diverse network is one of the absolute best things that you can do to forward your own career. The, um, there's all kinds of research about how networking has an influence on your career progress and how um, uh, having uh, relying on a, a wide range of people can be helpful. But it's overwhelmingly clear that if you have a broad, diverse um, network, you're more likely to get a much wider range of opportunities because you're hearing from many more people in many different kinds of places. You spot new ideas. You can spot trends before everybody else around you in your bubble sees the trends. Mm -hmm. You can get a sense of what competition is doing. Um, you can find job opportunities that otherwise wouldn't come your way. You can have new kinds of fun. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I totally agree with you that uh, it, there are so many reasons to plunge into activities where uh, the crowd is going to be um, more diverse than your normal one. It's like mm -hmm. getting on a baseball team or mm -hmm. going to an arts group or whatever it is you like. Just go where there are going to be people who are not like you. So mm -hmm. I didn't mean to, to lecture you of all people. Not Laura. at all. Not at all. But and I, I'd like to just add, I agree with you that, that going to these places where lots of different groups will join, you know, musical concert, whatever it is, and then deliberately putting yourself near someone you might chat with, you know, literally where you sit might lead to a simple small talk conversation. Now, that small talk conversation might go nowhere. But if you just sit with the same people, if you sit far off by yourself, right, that small talk conversation never has a chance. And you don't have to be real confident that you're a great talker. It's more mm -hmm. about being a willing listener and mm -hmm. starting with small talk, which is how we sort of can get things started and, and then hopefully finding a way to invite other people to talk, right? Absolutely. Well, I, um, I think people who are interested in these issues and uh, maybe are becoming increasingly aware of the gaps all around us would really enjoy and benefit from your book. Um, it's, uh, again, the, the name is the, the Business of We, and it's you know, got practical tools and suggestions, um, and uh, I... Uh, I, I do recommend it. Do you have any uh, parting advice from the book or elsewhere for our listeners today? We all know that divisive actions, you know, divided uh, groups um, prevent full optimal, you know, operations of, a, of an organization and also in a community. And I would say that it's not enough to simply not cause division that we need to actively build connection and that the future depends on people actively building connection. I mean, can you imagine what an organization might be like instead of wasting time and arguing over divisions and, you know, he said, she said, or whatever it is, and instead 
use the resources, the skills, the creativity, the education that that organization has to solve problems, uh, to innovate new products, uh, to expand their business, to generate more revenue. I mean, using our multiple talents, we could be spending our resources to solve big problems that we all have as a, as humans, you know, global uh, climate change, hunger, you know, th- this is what I think WeBuilding has the power to do. And I am committed to inspiring a WeBuilding revolution, but I cannot do it myself. I need your help. I need your listeners' help and everybody's help. Well, I think it's something that will all benefit if we all join in. So thank you so much, Laura, for inspiring us and for being here today. And I, I, I certainly wish you well with your um, efforts your commitment, and your new book. Thank you so much, Bev. Today we've been talking with Laura Kriska about bridging the gaps that can divide us at work. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's tip is that you can help to bridge the gaps that divide us. If you make it a habit to pause, focus, and truly listen to people, as you go about your day. Thank you for listening. I hope you come back soon.